my job is to take the words that were just read to you by Jen and to help you understand them and believe them and be moved to live from them. So that's, that's my job. That's what I'm seeking to do in the time that I have with you. Let me set this up with a couple of stories. 1987, Revere, Massachusetts, where I lived. Donnie Grasso, that's a real name. He took one of his buddy's motorcycles for a spin. It was a black Ninja, Kawasaki Ninja ZX. Anyone know about those from the mid-80s? Okay, sexy bike, that's what that was. He fired out of the church parking lot, spun up the hill, and he was going to take a spin on Fennel Street, maybe shoot down Broadway, and we were expecting to have him back into the parking lot within five, ten minutes. He never came back. Donnie was up on Fenno Street giving it some gas, and some bad driver pulled out in front of him without ever seeing him. The bike went down. He went off the side of the car, underneath another car, and his left leg got mangled in this accident. He literally saw his life flash before his eyes in a minute on Fenno Street in Revere. Ambulance a quick surgery on his leg. They weren't sure if he would keep it or not. A permanently mangled knee that he limps around a little bit on, but he survived the accident. And I will never forget talking to him a couple of months later. I was 16, and he said, Matt, or Maddie, Maddie, God, let me get into that accident. My life was a sinful mess before that. You guys just didn't know it. But he used that accident to wake me up to my life and where it was headed and who I was and the grace that I was in need of. I finally saw in that afternoon with clear eyes what I was all about and I knew something needed to change. Now when I was 16 and I did not know Scripture very well and I was a know-it-all sophomore punk in high school, I remember like rolling my eyes at him and saying, no, God wouldn't do that. Donnie was right, and I was wrong. In his grace, in his providence, he allowed for that accident to wake my friend up to his need for the gospel. All right, the other day I was talking to my friend Anthony Worth uh, a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, and he was telling his testimony. He said when he was 20 years old, he lived in San Diego, California. He was on top of the world. He was the head of a little rock band out there with long, long mullet, girls and drugs and parties and money in his pocket. He was on top of the world. He said his brother started pressing him to go to church, and he did, and some very simple, humble pastor was just preaching the law and the gospel of Jesus. And Anthony said that the hinges came off of his life in hearing that truth, that his life was shaken in this dark San Diego, not a church, but it was a church space that he was in, and that the necessity and the sufficiency of the cross of Christ for his sin became as plain as day. And his brother and this pastor led him to Jesus. Here's how he said it to me. He said, Matt, to us, he said, in that season, 
I became acutely aware of eternal realities for the very first time in my life. I had been living like I was God, and this life was it. But we all know that that's not true. And it was in that season that my life was shaken, and I was brought face to face with who I was and where I was headed. Do you feel that? So in his case, no, no motorcycle accident was needed, no big trauma. He just needed to sit under the preached word that exposed his life for what it was. The preached word shook this man to his core. Now, I could multiply stories like that for the rest of the day. I could actually hand the mic around this room, and a bunch of us would be able to raise our hand and say, there was this season where Jesus shook me, whether it was through difficult circumstances, through sins of my own, just through the preaching of the word. And I came to see who I was and the need that I was in for his grace. Here's what I want you to feel to be true, and then we're going to see this in the text. That in his love for his own, God the Father will shake the status quo of our lives. He will shake it in order to bring us to legitimate, real, life-giving repentance. And when he does that, somebody needs to be there, close, available, ready to lead that person, that family, to Jesus. This is Gospel 101. This is going to jump out at you from our text. I want you to see it and feel it and believe it. Let's pray before we do that. Father, visit us through the words of Scripture. We are daily in need of being awoken to the ridiculousness and the peril of sin and the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you could work that Even in this small group of people, you can change cities. You can change destinies. I pray that you would do it. I pray that this story would never be forgotten by this church after this day. Visit us by your Spirit through your Word. For Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. Okay, content before we hit the actual words of Scripture. In this 16th chapter of the book of Acts, here's what the Spirit of God is doing for you through the the pen of Dr. Luke, who wrote these words. He is saying to you, this is what it looked like, this is what it looks like for Jesus to plant a church. This is what it looks like for Jesus to give birth to a happy and holy and gospel-centered family that becomes a Jesus community in a city. Some Christians showed up in the city of Philippi. There was no gospel witness or church there. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, maybe some others. A gospel-formed family on mission together, and they just started loving people in this area called Philippi. And boom, the Spirit worked. Three weeks ago, we saw an older woman, Lydia, come to faith in Jesus through their testimony. Last week, we saw a slave girl be freed from the oppression that she was under, and begin to believe the gospel in community with these new believers. This week, we're going to see something different. We're going to see what it looks like when a a blue-collar guy comes to faith in Jesus 
but I need you to see that there's power of people moving toward others in love and the Spirit getting involved and a church being birthed. That is these three weeks of preaching to you. Okay, let's work these words in particular. Paul and Silas have just set uh, an early teenage girl who was oppressed spiritually and socially. She was trafficked by some bosses, set her free from that slavery, invited her into the community of Jesus. It's a beautiful story of the power of God. Her owners, the ones who were trafficking her, got very upset because they lost their means of financial gain. And so they caused an uproar in the city about these preachers, Paul and Silas. This is what the text says that the magistrates, the leaders in the city, did to these men. I've taken five verses and squeezed them in so that you can feel the impact. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the square. They tore the garments off of them. They gave orders to beat them with rods. They inflicted many blows upon them. The jailer, we'll meet him in a minute, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This story will only be as beautiful as it is if you feel the awfulness of this right here. Do you feel the physical pain? Anybody ever play stickball growing up? Now imagine a stickball bat just being drilled against your helpless hands held down back and back of your legs for 10 minutes until you are welted and bleeding. They inflicted them with many blows, physical pain. You feel the shame and the embarrassment? They didn't do this at headquarters. They dragged them out to the public square and then stripped them down to their loincloths and beat them like this. This is like me getting dragged out of here right now in front of Whole Foods and for the afternoon just being beaten while people walked in. Out in front of Starbucks on Main Street, the whole place was drawn to this scene. You feel the shame in there? Do you feel the injustice? They beat and embarrass and imprison them first for the night. Then the next day they were going to ask some questions about what happened, who's guilty, who's innocent. This is guilty until maybe found to be innocent. This is no justice. You feel what would have been going on in their hearts? Where is the justice, God, in this? And do you feel the rugged, callous, disinterested, mechanical treatment of these innocent men by this person right here, by the jailer? He did not make sure that their head did not hit the back of the squad car. Have you seen enough CSIs to know how they do that? He did not offer them a drink or a sandwich or Kit Kats or coffee or Cracker Jacks from the vending machine. You've seen how the good cop does that. He did not show them any, not just mercy, but even human decency. He puts them in the inner prison. This would have probably been a two-room prison with one room with some ventilation and some light. 
and then a dungeon kind of place that was darker and danker, that had no ventilation and no light and no bathroom. And that's where he throws them into. He fastens their feet in stocks to make sure that they do not get away. You've seen those wooden stocks, which was a mild form of torture, the pressure on your feet the entire night. This is what the jailer does to these apostles. What would be going on in your heart right now if you were them about him? Keep that in mind. He's fine with all of it. He's not worried about a thing. He locks up for the night. He walks home. His home was probably on a hill above the prison or next to the prison. And he watches Sports Center and he goes to bed without a care in the world. That's the jailer. Let's make sure that you get a feel for this guy. Uh, he's most likely ex military. That's who would receive this kind of a job in Roman culture. Ex-soldier, he's been honorable. Now he gets to keep the prison and have a good day job with a pension. That's who this is. He is not really intellectually inclined like Lydia was a couple of weeks ago. He's not a mess and just totally oppressed and 15 years old like the girl from last week. He is an honorable guy. He is a stand-up guy. He's a soldier. He gets authority. He's a practical guy. He's got a good job. He's a regular Roman Joe. When I coached hoop for real 15 years ago, I had a kid on my team named John Upton. You would have loved this kid. He wasn't big, so he was like 5'9", 5'10", but he was built like an oak tree his sophomore year in high school. And this was the kind of kid that ran every suicide all the way to the end and he was never not where he was supposed to be. And I could put him on the toughest kid on the other team and just say, John, you've got him. And he never complained, and he had no attitude, and he never talked back to me for two years, and he was tough as nails. Do you know what John Upton's father did for a living? He was a, he was a, a guard. He was a jailer at the Middleton House of Correction. This boy was crafted in the image of his father. It's perfect. That's exactly who this jailer is. Everybody feel that? Honorable, practical, no nonsense, and completely lost in his Roman sin. All right, next verse says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I've been getting ready to preach this to you for months. We know the sermons that are coming. And I still have no idea what to do with this verse. It is so astounding to my whiny, grumbly, complaining heart. I mean, think of the things that you would have done in that jail cell. I heard this guy talking about getting on a flight. It was like two weeks after Wi-Fi had been introduced on airplanes, like two weeks after the first airplane ever had Wi-Fi. And he said he was sitting next to this guy who was working on his laptop. And 10 minutes into the flight, the guy slammed his laptop shut and was like, are you serious? This is ridiculous. The Wi-Fi is down. And he said he looked at him and said, buddy, 10 minutes ago, you didn't even know Wi-Fi existed on airplanes. You are 5,000 feet above the ground 
going from Boston to San Francisco in five hours. Somebody's about to come down the aisle with peanuts and a Sprite. You can go to the bathroom in midair in the back, and you're complaining that your Wi-Fi, which you didn't know existed eight minutes ago, went down. Who has a heart that is just like that? What would we have been doing in this jail cell? Come on, you got to feel it. I wrote, commiserating with Silas, stewing, lamenting, feeling sorry for myself, whining, complaining, quietly accusing God for having forgotten me. Maybe I would have been praying silently. Maybe. Maybe. This is out loud and happy praise song, extolling the virtues of God. That's what a hymn is. What a witness. You and the jailer and the other prisoners would be expecting them to curse God in that hell hole at midnight. And instead, these men are so loyal to God, so confident in Him, so certain about His grace that they're okay. In fact, they have joy. They're rejoicing in the character of God, in His sovereignty, in His providence. It's a confession of faith that just totally blows me away. Blows me away. That's who's in this prison. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfashioned, unfastened. Quick explanation for the skeptics in the room. I know I have whatever side of the brain is that gets very skeptical about everything, very analytical. So this was not a prison like Shawshank or Alcatraz or Walpole or the prison that Tom Cruise broke out of at the beginning of Mission Impossible 4. This was not a giant prison with a million cells and there was a little earthquake and all of a sudden, magically, every single cell happened to pop open and all their chains popped off, but everything else was fine. That's not this. Earthquakes often in this region of Philippi. This is an ancient building, a small building. It might not even have had a full roof on it, that kind of thing. Probably two rooms, maybe a little foyer. And those gates are secured like an ancient building would be to the, to the stucco, masoned on there. Same thing with the chains on the walls, same thing with the stocks in the grounds. In other words, if you give that kind of building a real shaking, stuff's just going to pop loose. And so that what happens, an earthquake in this region in the middle of the night, but a big one, and the gates pop loose, and the stocks shake on their foundation, and now you can rip those chains off of the wall. And whether it was three or six or ten prisoners, we don't know, but everyone is able to get free. What's Fascinating here is God could have opened their, their bonds silently, right? He could have kicked the gates open. We've seen the Spirit do that before in a jail in the book of Acts. But instead, God chooses to shake the ground. In Scripture, in the book of Acts, this is a display of the active power of God to say supernatural is at work here with the timing of these things. And what's most interesting here is that God has sent this earthquake not primarily to get Paul and Silas free, but He sent it to get the jailer free. 
middle of the night, a massive shaking of everything in the city. The gates kick open, the chains come free. Who is the first person in this city that jumps out of bed? Who is the first person in this city to jump out of bed when the earthquake hits? When the jailer woke and saw, probably from the steps of his house, the front of his home, that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Anybody ever see that Twitter handle, you had one job at, you had one job? Kind of funny, it's pictures of people who have one thing to do and they just mess it up terribly. So I saw this one of this zookeeper or zoo, zoo worker texting, and behind him is a monkey and he's eating like McDonald's Happy Meals, and there's like wrappers around him. And then in the picture is the sign that says, do not feed the animals. And I saw this other one that was an article, how to be a better editor, E-D-I-T-T-O-R. And it's got all these pictures. You just had one thing to do, and you couldn't get that done. That's this right here, only it's not funny. A jailer in the Roman Empire has one job, sit, keep your prisoners secure. If you fail at that one job, your life is forfeit. Everyone knew that code in Roman culture. This is like the captain of a boat. If you captain a boat and that boat crashes ashore, your career is finished. It's over. There is no excuse. It doesn't matter if you ran out of gas. It doesn't matter if Orca banged into the side of the boat. It doesn't matter if the Red October came by and shot something at you. It doesn't matter if you were in the Bermuda Triangle. It does not matter. If your boat runs ashore, your career is over. That's this, only your life is over. This is why he has lifted his sword and is going to drive it through himself. What did we say? He's an honorable guy. This is the honorable move. As the blade flashes before his eyes, his life flashes before his eyes, the jailer is a dead man. He's dead. That's what you need to feel right here. He's about to stand before God, and he knows it. He's dead. Now come some of the most beautiful, precious, encouraging words in Scripture. But Paul cried with a loud voice, No! Don't do it! Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. This is where this text starts to get crazy. What in the world are they still doing there? If you could have escaped in general, and if you could have escaped knowing that the guy that dropped you in that deep dungeon and whacked your head off the back of the of the squad car and stuck you in that place for the night was going to lose his job and or his life. They know that if they escape, the jailer is dead. Everybody knows that. They don't run. They don't even stay silent and just let him kill himself. They could have done that too, right? They could have disappeared and not been close, or they could have just said nothing 
and said, good for him, God serving justice on him for the way that he treated the apostles of God. They don't do any of those things. In this story, they are right there. They are close. They are near. They are available. They are for this jailer. And they are ready to lead this man to Jesus if they need to. What kind of gospel love was driving the days and nights of these apostles? Wild. Jailer called for lights. He rushed in, trembling with fear. Trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let's let these words speak to us. Has anybody ever been in a near-death experience before? Kind of close, really close? Yeah. Grace and I were on a plane once from Tulsa to Houston. Do not ask me what in the world we were doing on a plane from Tulsa to Houston, but we were. This was 22 years ago. And the, the flaps on the wings, which is the only thing that slows you down when you're coming in for a landing, stopped working. So we're sitting in the aisle with the wing. The co-pilot comes back. How you doing? Can I just look over your shoulder? He looks over my lap at the wing. I'm like, oh, shoot. He walks back. Pilot comes out. Can I just slide in between you guys? He looks out. I'm like, oh, shoot. Co-pilot comes out a second time. Pilot comes out a second time. Four visits from the, 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 the flyers of this plane. And then the announcement comes on. We have a serious problem. The flaps are broken. The good news is we're going to get to Houston much earlier than you thought. The emergency vehicles are on the runway. As we come in for the landing, here's what the crash position looks like. Houston has long runways, so we think we're going to be fine, but we just need to let you understand, instead of hitting the ground at... Doug could help me, but 400 miles an hour, you're going to hit the ground at 800 miles an hour and hope that this thing stops. So that was an interesting descent in our early marriage and our early life. And we hit the ground. We were flying. It was smoky. We pinned up against the fence at the very end of the runway. The relief. That was my over. Uh, I mean, I believe the gospel is like if we die... I'm leaning into Jesus. But the overarching thing was like a hug and a kiss for grace and like relief. And then like, oh, no, i got to get on a plane in 45 minutes. I don't want to do it. I'm driving back to Boston. That's the experience that a lot of people have with near-death experience. It's, it's a relief, and they're, just, they're, they're like a little shaken, but they are just happy to be alive. That is not this man's reaction. He is not just thrilled to have escaped death and let me just get home and sleep in my bed again. He is terrified. Fear and trembling define what is going on in his soul. What is this right here? In this moment, on this night, the living God has used this earthquake and this scene to shake this man to the core of his soul. For the first time ever, like my friend Donnie, like my friend Anthony, like me, like many of you, 
he has absolute clarity on the state of his soul for the first time ever, right here. Up to this point, it was eat and drink and work and get paid and watch TV and throw the ball around with his kids and pay zero attention to his conscience, to his language, to his life, to the living God. Zero. It wasn't until his death and his mortality was right in front of him that he remembered everything he was trying to forget, that he could no longer be distracted from exactly who he was. And this proud, successful, pagan, Roman soldier is humbled. He's humbled. And that's when we're ready to believe. Here's how Calvin says it. Hereby it appears what a good thing it is for men to be thrown down from their pride so that they may learn to submit themselves to God. He was, the jailer, hardened with his superstitions. He might with a lofty heart have despised whatever Paul and Silas might have said whom he had reproachfully thrown into the innermost prison. But now fear makes him humble, able to be taught, gentle. Therefore, so often as the Lord strikes us or casts us down, this lets us know that this is done, that we may be brought to humility so that we may be saved. That's what this is. A sight of his mortality, clear eyes on the holiness of God, and he falls on his face and says, what do I have to do to be saved? Things are not okay as they are. This is very often God's way of calling sinners into eternal life, especially ridiculous, stubborn sinners. He shakes up our lives. He does it in a hundred different ways. Earthquakes, planes, the preaching of the Word, motorcycle accidents. He wakes us up to our desperate need for gospel grace. Here's the jailer. He's awakened. He's humble. He's not playing games anymore. He is ready for someone to give him gospel. Who does he reach out to? Paul and Silas. Of all the guys in the prison, he knows that these two guys are men of God. He knows that these two guys got something crazy awesome going on because they're singing in his prison in the middle of the night. I don't think he had ever heard that before in his career as a security guard. And they're still there. He runs and he throws himself before them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? They lead him to Jesus. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. We'll deal with the household things here in a different sermon, but I just don't want you to miss the big idea. The remedy for our sin is Christ. Christ is the mark. I was at the Y the other day running on my treadmill, and there's this other guy talking to this other guy, 
and he's gospeling him with all this self-help crap. Here's what you got to do. You can do it. Here's how I did it. Just do it like I did it. Everyone notice that none of that is in this conversation. He doesn't say, here's what to change. Here's how to be a better person. Here's the book that you need to read. If you just hang out with us, you can get there. He says, Christ, that's it. Christ is our only hope, our only security, our only sufficiency, our only remedy. It's Christ. I love this scene. It's the middle of the night. It's like two in the morning. I love that God would bring salvation to someone in their household at 2 a.m. That these crazy acts of God could happen at any time, at any place, if you have a humbled sinner and if you have a Christian moved by gospel love, ready and willing to lead them to Jesus. Here's the last verse. He took them that hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Can everybody feel the immediate transformation of this guy's soul? It's like that season when you're born again. Everything just changed about everything in your life. He has gone from treating these men terribly to treating them tenderly. He has gone from not caring a whit about their comfort to healing their wounds to feeding their stomach. He doesn't care if his bosses find out. He had no orders to treat these men with kindness, and now they are at his table in his home, and he doesn't care who knows about it. By the power of the gospel, you can change. You can change. This man who had tortured and imprisoned these apostles, who could care less about God and the things of the gospel, is bathing their wounds and giving them food and rejoicing in gospel grace with them. This is a beautiful work that God does over and over and over. He humbles us and we believe and everything changes for us. All right, let me give you three questions to finish this. These are applications. Have you come to fear and trembling and repentance and faith and joy. These would be the words that I would give to Anthony Wirth or his brother if they were in our church this morning. Have you come to be shaken of the ridiculousness of your life outside of the grace of Jesus? Of the peril that your soul would be in if God does not move towards you in mercy and you don't say yes to that mercy? This is what it looks like for all of us to come into the kingdom of Jesus, to see the necessity and the sufficiency of the cross of Christ for us. There is a joy and a freedom in that place like none other. If you've just been in cruise control in your life and God's been an afterthought, if that, be shaken today that you might see actually who you are and who He is. And that bridge of Christ may bring you back to the Father.
I want this for every neighbor that I have, for everyone that the Lord would give us, and I want this badly for you. Have you come to this place? Second question for those of us who have, and this is a big part of this story. Are you a close, available, ready gospel witness in people's lives? Our good friend Ray Ortland says, here's my evangelistic strategy in a post-Christian secular city like Boston. Love people like crazy and be there when their life falls apart. To translate that, it would be love people like crazy and be there when their life gets shaken. Love people like crazy and be there when their bike goes underneath another car and they almost lose their leg. Love people like crazy and be right there. If your coworkers, your neighbors, were shaken by the grace of God, would they know that you know God and you fear God and your life doesn't look like everyone else's life? And would they know that if they took a step towards you, I'm not saying they're going to throw themselves at your feet, but if they took a step towards you, that you would welcome them, that you would be there, that you would not judge them or despise them. Remember how Paul and Silas were still there. Is that us? Are we close and near and available and ready so that when someone does need to be led to Christ, I'll play that role in their lives. We are all invited into this, all of us. All right, and then last one. Do you believe that the same power that created the church in Philippi is present by word and spirit today? Everybody in here has got to believe that with us. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what the shaking is going to look like. But I want us to believe that Jesus is after souls in Melrose and Stoneham and Wakefield and Malden in exactly the same way that he was after souls in Philippi. We might get beat up for it. We might have some long nights for it. But we are going to love people and we are going to be available. And we're not going to lead them to religion. We're going to lead them to grace and to Jesus. And we will be celebrating our own story in eternity of how Jesus showed up in our time, in our place, and brought us to fear and trembling and repentance and faith and moved us toward others that they might join us in it. That's Gospel 101. That's why this story was given to us. May we say yes and yes and yes to these three questions in deeper ways in these years that are ahead of us. All right, let's pray together. Father, eternity is written on our hearts. We don't have this all figured out. Our church does not have perfect theology or or a perfect bead on how all of this works. But I want you to hear us this morning as we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. We want to be a part of a community that sees fear and trembling, honesty, repentance, Faith, joy, changed lives. 
I pray that you would give us the same exact heart that Paul and Silas had. No complaining, no grumbling, no whining. Presence. Confidence in Christ. Gospel love for others. That if everything falls apart in this city, at least people would know, if I hit up that seven-mile road thing, there's going to be some folks there who will love me, who will lead me to Jesus. Would you please see fit to make this community that kind of place? Would you also do it in our homes and in our lives? Would you do it for the good of many and for the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen.